Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Laura Goldberg. I'm your host today with the Food Channel here on New Books Network. You might know me from my website, vittlesvamp.com. I'm here today with Robert Bradley, who just released Eating Peru, A Gastronomic Journey. Uh, really, Thank you for, for joining today, Robert. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I, I, I prefer Bob. Bob, you've heard it, Bob. Um, so I have to say from the get-go, Having read your introduction, it, it seems that this book, in some ways, is a bit of a love story, not only with Peru and food, but with your wife. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, before, for years, I was, uh, I sold wine in New York City and New Jersey. I worked with Robert Mondavi. So I, I had a lot of food background. I was sold to restaurants, Filonico, uh, Chantrell, uh, Gramercy Tavern was my account. And then one year I just, uh, in the 90s, it got a little bit too corporate. So I went to uh, on vacation in Belize and I saw these archaeologists work and it made me want to go back to school. And I got my PhD at Columbia in art history and archaeology with my focus on Peru. And when I got to Peru, I don't think I ever lost the foodie Bonafides, because I kept coming down from the mountains where I was doing my work, and I said, "Wow, food's really great here." And one thing led to another. I ran into my wife, who's you know, Peruvians have unbelievable food surrounding them. Like you know, the even in the smallest village on the coast of Peru, the the fish is fresher than almost anything you get, even at a big city market. And I sort of bonded with my wife because she just naturally loves good food. That's the one thing that we, we really had in common. And, uh, you know, then after years of doing the archaeology, I just started to, to publish in food. I, I, I published in a journal called Anthropology of Food, and I drifted from archaeology into food studies, and that's how I got here. But yes, I mean, I still do. I, me and my wife's Peruvian, but I do the cooking in the house. I mean, and I, I'm really interested. I I love when I'm down in Peru cooking with her mother, or like going to markets and learning things, and and she's fine with that. <laughs> I, I, am I wrong? But I think some of your mother-in-law's recipes are actually in the book too. Yes, yeah, Sonia's got something in there, and her uh, her aunt uh, Cecilia, she has a restaurant in Lima, and uh, one of her recipes on Papa de Huacaina, and that's that's in the book too. But her her restaurant's really doing well. I was there and. Um, <clears throat> August, and uh, it's just really gotten bigger. They have a new floor, and and you know Lima's got such a fantastic uh, you know food boom. I mean, they, they did the top fifty restaurants in the world, and incredible. I mean, seriously, for this, you know, as as you call it, uh, it's an elitist. There's aspects of it that are very elitist in terms of the gastronomic boom. These are definitely Michelin star places that are getting a lot of the attention, but obviously. There's a full range of kind of of, of restaurants and cafes, um, and marvelous holes in the wall in in Lima. But um, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to jump to something because at, at the end of the book, you, you do offer a criticism a bit of those elitist aspects of, of the boom. Want to share your thoughts on that and, and the range that, that you've actually seen in, in Lima? Sure, sure. I, I mean, the thing that's really impressive about Peru is almost anywhere you go, they're just the incredible quality. Now, there are little holes in the wall, little pensions you can go to that are not very good. I mean, but generally speaking, most are excellent. And I would say if you're going to go to some little place, make sure it's crowded because the locals are going to know what's really good and who washes the vegetables and all that stuff. But, you know, once you find it, the the last chapter in the book, I go over a conversation between Raul Mata, uh, who's, uh, I think he's based in Belgium now, but he's a Peruvian who writes, uh, he, he's the editor for Anthropology of Food, and he writes extensively about the, you know, the Peruvian gastronomic boom, and uh, Merkel Lauer, who's uh, another Peruvian. And they talk about uh, this this boom and, you know, who really benefits from it. Uh, to most of the, I'll call them Western writers, North Americans, some Europeans, uh, they see the food boom as a very elitist, sort of neoliberal thing that doesn't really benefit the people of Peru. But Marco Lauer pretty much shoots that to pieces by saying, yeah, there was generally a, an expansion in the Peruvian economy that that did help out everyone. I mean, for me, I, you know, I have the background with, you know, selling wine, being in the, you know, that the business, so to speak. So um, I, I understand that Peruvians are rightly proud. There's a whole school of authors that publish from San Martin de Portas Press, and they, they they publish basically recipes and and histories on why Peru is so special. And it's a little nationalistic, but it's generally well, it's almost 100 percent positive. The writing that comes out of the West is critical of the boom for the most part, and it takes a more theoretical approach. Like this is, as you said, just an elitist thing. And I'd like to think I, I look at both. Yeah, and, and, and that's good because there are some things that just get elitist and kind of silly. But but then again, you know, the, the whole you know, opus or the, the whole, uh, all these books that are published by San Martin de Portas Press, they're fantastic. And I don't think a lot of the Western writers uh, use them enough. And I use them extensively in, in the book. And I'm very, very happy. I, you know, I, I actually give a note in the acknowledgments that, you know, in many ways I couldn't write this book without some of their writings. I mean, you know, they're fantastic history, histories of things. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, that's... Give, me, give credit where credit is due. The other thing I will say is there was uh, a poll you mentioned in the... the um, in the book, that uh, a poem Peru found that seventy nine percent of Peruvians consider gastronomy to be the principal source of national pride ahead of the ruins of Machu Picchu. It was at thirty six percent Machu Picchu. I thought that was kind of astonishing. Yeah, and that's that's a that is a really 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 good thing. I mean, Machu Picchu is basically getting loved to death. Um, I. I do study abroad in Peru pretty much every year. And generally speaking, I had to do it in the Cusco area, even though my wife's from the North Coast and, um, you know, there's other places I would rather go. Um, I've been to Machu Picchu many times, I think eight to 10, something like that. 
And every time I go there, uh, it just gets more and more restrictive. Now they have it so you have two different passes. You have one in the morning, one in the afternoon. You have to follow a line, like almost like Disney World. Um, it's just there's so many people up there. It's really hard to have a, a really great experience. I mean, the first time I went to Machu Picchu, I went wherever I wanted to. I found a little cave and chewed some coca leaves and sat there for a couple hours and you know, unbothered. And you just can't do that anymore. Even with the students now, when I go there, I, I really, I, I take the trail up to Machu Picchu because I like the climb. It's kind of fun. Um, but I, I do, as soon as I see the buses at the top, I mean, I just turn around and go back down and have lunch. <laughs> yeah, I see that. <laughs> it's just uh, it, anything that, you know, there's so many other wonderful ruins in Peru, wonderful pre-Columbian, you know, sites. And, but everybody's got to do, you know, the bucket list, Machu Picchu. Yeah. yeah no, it's, it's for Instagram, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Well, it's a shame. But um, that said, it was really impressive that so many Peruvians consider gastronomy to, to be what they're proudest of in terms of national pride. Yes, um, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. One of the other things you brought up in the book that struck me was that there's a real difference in freshness and staying away from junk food. You, you, you mentioned that bread is often delivered twice in a day to most households. And in the coastal villages, you'll see in the morning, you'll have kids with bicycles in this white box in the front and they'll go ride around, ring the bell and they'll, they'll deliver your bread. And then again in the afternoon. So two times a day. I mean, I love, I, I love when I got there with my kids and my wife and you, my kids didn't snack. I mean, there's really Peruvians <coughs> aren't very good at having snacks in the store. They really don't need them. Um, and, it's nice. It's nice, uh, you know, having having fresh things. So, yeah, it's 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 a wonderful way to to live. I will say you also mention in the book that this has been going on thousands of years in a ways. Great food. That you mentioned that there was an archaeologist that excavated the remains of a woman. Uh, you know, I want to say it was something like four thousand years ago. This. Was, was, yeah, and that the undigested material that they discovered in her stomach that, that they were able to actually figure out what her last meal was, it included, and let me know if I got this right, mussels, peanuts, sea snails, sea urchins with ahi, hot pepper, along with three types of fruit. And, I mean, you also wrote in there, there's a great line, at this time, in any other corner of the world, not even powerful despots would have dined as well as this ancient Peruvian. No, that's exactly correct. And that was, um, that Junius Bird did the work there, but then Tom Dillahay, who's just a fantastic archaeologist, he did the, uh, the follow-up excavation. So, so this was recorded quite well. I mean, this is, this is good data from people that, that really know what they're doing. And when you when you see that, it's just amazing. I I mean, you know, the way that these ancient people ate on the on the coast is just it, it's phenomenal to me. The other thing that always got me was the loche squash. Um, you know, loche is a type of squash which is really only grown in the area around Chiclayo, which is a city in northern Peru. 
and it's been cultivated there for 10,000 years, 10,000 years. I mean, I found an article when I was doing my research and it was a, a meeting of, there's a scientific name for squash that escapes me right now, but it's a meeting of all the squash scientists or botanists. Uh, I, I love the idea that there's a meeting of squash scientists. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of kind of amazing. Um, but anyhow, the, out of this proceedings, they published a paper where they said this loche squash is 10,000 years old. It's only cultivated in this one area. And it even like astounded them. And, you know, just a, they use this squash nowadays in a recipe that we cabrito. So they make the kid goat stew, which is very, very famous. It's one of the most famous dishes, non ceviche dishes in Peru. And it's uh, the cabrito norteño, the, the one from the North Coast, is, is the most famous. To make that, you need to use loche. So, uh, you know, my mother-in-law says it gives it like a, a flavor that, that if she doesn't have loche, it tastes like water. Uh, Ricardo Sulim Wang, who's a, a Tushan Chinese-Peruvian descent, he says it gives uh, tropical fruit flavors to the cabrito, but, you know, they, they wouldn't cook without it. So one year we stayed in Trujillo, which is a city that's three hours south of Chiclayo, and they don't grow it there. So my mother-in-law, when she would come down from Chiclayo by bus, you know, the three-hour trip, she would carry a loche with her. <laughs> she just couldn't. Like a woman with her own squash. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that's how serious that, you know, they take that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and, and when you think, well, you know, it was literally almost the hunter-gatherers that that got there that were cultivating this thing. So it's it's really one of the one of the first things, you know, cultivate. It's amazing. It just, <laughs> yeah, so the... You know, as far as the, the the freshness of things, the enduring, you know, things that they use in in dishes, it's amazing. It's a, there's a reason why Peru is such a celebrated you know food destination. Well, you brought up earlier how incredibly fresh the fish is there, um, and obviously the dish that I think at least most Americans know really well is ceviche. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, a, a number of us have tried it. I've tried it, but. What do you think most people don't know about it? And I, I mean, obviously there are nuances based on on different areas in Peru, but I would love to to get the full ceviche download from you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, sure, I'll talk about that all day. Um, the you know the it, proof spoiled me on with fish. I mean, it it really did. Uh, you know, I could go into the most expensive market in New York City and. They're, the freshness isn't anywhere close to what it would be in a village. I mean, <laughs> in Wanchaco, or if I was in Pimentel or Terminal Santa Rosa, this huge, basically truck stop where they load the fresh catches onto trucks and you can get to pick a fish. Well, once they find out that you have real money, you have real soles and you're, you're preparing to pay 50 to a hundred dollars for a fish. They're very, very nice to you. I, I find markets are the are the greatest places in the world once they figure out you're not a tourist and you're not there just to take photographs of them, but you want to do business. And it's the most wonderful experience you can get. But you know, all these fish, I, what the easiest thing that I do is I always go up and smell them. And you know, you smell like a, a, a fish that has no smell whatsoever except the sea. Uh, it, it smells like the ocean. And you try to do that in any market. I mean, I've done that here in Mark say, can I smell it? And to me, it's always, well, that's not too decayed. I mean, there's always a little smell of decay. 
Uh, and you do not get that in Peru. In Peru, if you really, the really fun stuff is on the North Coast, they have these Cabalitos de Tortora. They're, they're reed boats that are pre-Columbian. They're, they're, they're the same boats that they use in the pre-Columbian era, except they stuff them with uh, empty soda bottles now to keep them floating longer because they're reed boats. They get waterlogged after a while. And they use nylon to wrap them instead of uh, what they would use cotton string. But they're the same type of vessel. And these boats go out and they do their fishing and they come back. They can't come back with big fish like um, uh, snook or uh, what's another one? Uh, Ojo de Uba, which is Medusa fish. Um, that's one of my favorite. But that one you need to have a trawler to catch it with a deep, long line. But they come back in with cheetah and these smaller fish that you can buy them right, right from, you know, right as the boats pull up. I've done that with my mother-in-law, run down there with the restaurateurs and throw money at the guys. And you, you got something that was just swimming, you know, uh, an hour ago, a half an hour ago. And to get that kind of freshness, it, it's almost impossible the way our system is set up, unless you go out fishing on, on a fishing boat and, you know, bring in your own stuff. But you can't do that all the time. Um, so, you know, this is something that's that Peruvians take for granted. I mean, and and they're very picky about their fish on the North Coast, too. I mean, any celebrations, it's typically they'll have sudado like a fish stew or ceviche is always like the first course. And, you know, that's that's basically it. You're dealing with with some of the you know fish that was swimming in the ocean and it's on your plate. And that's that's the reason that. Peruvian ceviche is the best in the world. I mean, when I'm in restaurants, I, I ate in a Peruvian restaurant here a couple of nights ago. And to me, that's that's sort of the 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 kiss of death because uh it'll never be it'll, it'll never be good. Well, wh one thing that they do, and you probably noticed this where you know, in any Peruvian restaurant you go and they use Aji Amarillo. Uh Aji Amarillo is capsicum bacatum. I think that's the it's a it's a type of pepper that they only only have in Peru. I mean, I've grown some in my backyard. I brought seeds back, but generally speaking, and it's not yellow. It's actually orange, which makes it kind of weird. It's not a hot pepper, but it's very flavorful. Um, and you buy the paste here. You know, you can buy the paste in, in, in most, you buy it online, Amazon will have it. And why, every time I go in a Peruvian restaurant here, there's too much aji amarillo paste in the ceviche. And I, I'm sure they do that to hide some of the flavors that, that are, yeah, not that good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it just, every time I see a plate of ceviche and I could see it's kind of orangey, it's got that aji amarillo in it. I'm just like, okay, well, what? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's, it's sad because, well, I don't, I don't know what else you can do. I mean, especially here in McAllen, we, you know, I should say you're in Oklahoma. Am I correct? No, I'm in Texas. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm about an hour, hour and fifteen minutes from South Padre Island. So you do get good fish come in there, but again, it's got to go through this whole chain. By the time it gets to even a high end supermarket here or a high end fish vendor, I mean, it's it's already been hanging out for a day or two. You know, so yeah, no, it's it's challenging. I mean, I will say, I live in New York, and Lord knows there. are the places here that FedEx in fish, which I find amazing from Japan, um, you know, and I, I do have a restaurant near me, I'm lucky enough, where I know if they've got Vinny's fresh 
you know, Montauk Bass on the menu. It was swimming earlier that day. But that's a rarity. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not in Peru. You you, you know, Laura, you, you'll love it there. You know, get there. You just be, wow, this <laughs> really amazing. I don't want to. And then especially once you develop a, a, a rapport with, uh, you know, some fishmongers, some, you know, the generally speaking in the markets, you know, a lot of women, you know, are the, are the, sell the fish. And once, once they know you're coming there every day to buy what they have, they're, they're really nice. I mean, I get the, I get most flattered when I go into a market. I remember, you know, a few years ago in Wenchaco, um, I, I went into the market and there were there were some of these uh, you know people from Lima you know you could tell they were uh, you know upper upper class people on vacation in Trujillo, and the woman in the market like she she took my order first she actually you know addressed me before them and they they said to her said why why are you talking to this gringo and gringo has no not negative connotation in Peru it just means foreigner. So they said, why are you talking to this gringo before us? And she's there. Well, he's here every day buying fish. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I am. Thank you. <laughs> well, I've got to say, you know, you're telling me that I should go to Peru and I'll have a great time. Your your first chapter, you basically lay out a food historian foodies dream tour of Lima and then one of Cusco. Um, so... so you know, were you actually thinking about somebody following in your footsteps when you put that together? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I, I want to have people, you know, go to the right places first. I, I mean, you know, you can have a bad experience. In, in you can have a bad experience anywhere. Anywhere, yeah. I mean, you know, so you can, you know, and then people, I, I understand, you know, they're they're going down to the global south. They're going to a place where they might not know the food that well and they'd be a little defensive um but i don't want them to stick to the tourist places or god help us just you know go go have peruvian or you know mcdonald's or something because there are mcdonald's all over peru there's there's there a lot of places everywhere yeah yeah no that's that's for sure but i mean you know but right Right next to McDonald's or right down the street, you'll have uh, La Lucha, which is a Peruvian sandwich place. The The best turkey I've ever had in my life is in Peru. I literally don't like Thanksgiving. I know it's coming up because there's so much bad turkey <laughs> that we have here. Uh, dry. Very, it, very dry. Yeah, it, it is. And my 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 father-in-law would, would pay. He would have no problem paying. And, you know, he's not not a wealthy man, but he would pay a hundred soles. It would pay like $30 for a turkey there. And, you know, it is about as free range as you can get. And, you know, they just cook, they, they, they're very precise. He'll send the turkey down to a local bakery so that they use their ovens. They're, they're really, really uh, just obsessive with the turkey. So much so and that's Trujillo in this Northern city. La Lucha is a sandwich shop that's yeah, there's a number of them in Lima and a few other cities, and it's fantastic. They're they're turkey sandwich with salsa criollo, which is red onions, hot pepper, and lime juice. Um, with, that's the garnish on top of this fresh turkey sandwich with fresh made bread. It's just it's an incredible sandwich. But the I best one in Peru, <laughs> yeah. But the best one in Peru is in the city of uh, Trujillo. There's a, a sandwich place in there, the Jugaria de San de San Agustin. 
And you can get a glass of papaya juice with uh, a turkey sandwich there. There's typically a line, you know, going out the door of that place. It's just, it's amazing. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's making me hungry. If I could, I'd jump on a jet and just do Thanksgiving in Peru and, you know, have some turkey sandwiches. That would be Well, I mean, haven't you ever tried to do Peruvian Thanksgiving in Texas? Yeah, what I do is um, I have a, a charcoal grill, you know, and a rotisserie. And what I'll do is I'll do a rotisserie, uh, uh, you know, turkey. I can't do a real big one, but I could do a smaller one. And I typically just marinate it with some soy and some lime and some olive oil for, if I can, three, four days, and then put it on the uh, rotisserie. And and that's really good. I can't, I, I, I don't, make my own fresh bread, but maybe someday I will. Uh, but I could get pretty close. I mean, the, the salsa criolla, I have a, I think I have that recipe. Yeah, I do in the book. I mean, that's something that, that, you know, anyone should try, just get the, the red onions with a hot pepper and you, and you could use anything there. Some of the Peruvian hot peppers are hard or impossible to get here. There's, there's basically, uh, one, two, three, like four of them that are fantastic. One's the Aji Amarillo, but the, uh, the, 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 the best one's Rocoto. That's the one that it looks like a little mini bell pepper, but it's not. It's hot and it's got a flavor that's just absolutely exquisite. You know, you have one because when you cut it open, it's got these black seeds. I can't grow them here because they have to grow in a cooler climate with a little bit of altitude. Um, but they do grow them in Mexico and, and, you know, we get them, or at least before the pandemic, we got them in our market here in May, you know, right around that time. And they call them Manzano peppers, but that's a Peruvian pepper. That's you know, then, you know, so, so they're absolutely fantastic. But if you ever get a ricotto, you, you know, you could use it with, uh, red onion, uh, lime juice, salt, and and that's basically it. And and that it's that's enough, awesome. It's enough. I mean, you know, it it there's you know made made me think of like salsa verde. And I've I've lived in spent time in Buenos Aires, and um you know there they've got a similar. It's not as spicy, but it's called salsa criolla is how they pronounce it. And and you know it's it's about something just you know a flavor bomb that you're putting on top of this stuff just a little, just enough, an accent. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, you can put that on, on sometimes I think a shoe and it's, it's good. It would probably make it taste good. You're right. And it, you know, it's even better to just let it pickle a little bit, even if you leave it for a half a day or something, it's, it's fantastic, but it works well with Turkey. Then, you know, there's no doubt about it. Now, now you got me thinking about Turkey. Um, sorry if I started you a little too early on, on thinking about that, but you know, accompanying that Turkey you need to drink something. And I know you were in wine sales, you know, for many, many years. But, you know, I was curious about Peru and wine. And I saw that you mentioned Torontes, which they also have in Argentina. But there are these other drinks, some which I really didn't know about. Um, I mean, I've heard of Chicha, which is a maize beer. But this other one, Guarapo, which is a sugarcane beer. And then, of course, there's Pisco. I was, I was hoping you could sort of... Um, you know, go through these different drinks that are so incredibly, you know, uh, specific and th that people really need to, to explore and taste and, you know, guzzle down. Yeah. I mean, this one, God, that this one would not only take all day, it would take all week. 
Um, it's really, really fantastic. I mean, chicha, you, Peruvian corn beer has been made for millennia. Um, the Inca had basically Vestal Virgins, the chosen women, you know, that made it. Um, on the coast, the tradition's very ancient. You have this ancient seafarer who comes in on the north coast and he has his own brewer. They actually, we have a name of his brewer. I mean, that's amazing. You know, you've got this guy's famous. He's a, he's a brewer. That's what he does. He takes care of the drinks for the king. Um, but he comes in and the, there's different styles of chicha. And the North Coast, they have chicha, which is aged. It is, uh, you know, fermented for long durations. In the Highlands, it's not. I mean, they sort of ferment it for a little bit. It gets some alcohol and it might have like 3%. And then they drink tons of it. Um, you know, it it's really interesting when you when you drink like 10 glasses of, you know, very sweet, uh, low alcohol chicha. I, I mean, it's uh, it. it it's it's very interesting. On the coast, it tastes more like a sherry. That's what I'd compare it to. Um, really? and, yeah, yeah. And they also use that in, in cooking. Now, not all the on the on the coast, you're not going to always see that that longer aged chicha. I mean, because a lot of Highlanders have moved down to the coast and they're making sort of the sweet style. Um, to me, I you know, there's just nothing like a you know an older you know something that's been aged and and fermented for a long time. Uh, you know, if you find a place that has that, you'll know what I mean. Uh, Warapu is sugarcane beer, and that basically came in. Well, I with... totally mispronounced that. Totally. <laughs> no, well, that, that's fine. I mean, but that came in with uh, you know the enslaved people, basically the you know the Afro-Peruvians, and you know that was a very very popular drink. If you start looking in the um, in the colonial record, you you see that Warapu was just um, was about as popular as chicha for a while. You have to remember that Peru brought in, you know, when when you look at, you know, after the conquest era and, you know, Pizarro and Almagro basically kill each other. They're, they're, they were more like mafiosos than conquistadors. And then finally they send in Toledo, the viceroy and the king of Spain says, hey, keep this under control. And then you get from 1600 to 1700. I mean, Lima it, is the most prosperous city in the world. I mean, just about. I mean, they find this silver mine, Potosi, and it, it changes the world's economy. And Peru becomes this incredibly wealthy place. And, and you know, unfortunately, they brought in a lot of enslaved Africans that did a lot of the work. Um, but they also came in and they were very almost, you know, you see Warapo almost as popular as Chicha because that was a drink that, that you know, the African Peruvian slaves, you know, enjoyed. And then that died out because the... The uh, uh, Afro-Peruvians, ba basically, there were less coming in as you move farther into the colonial era. And then when the Republican era, when they basically become independent, slavery is abolished. And sort of all the Afro-Peruvians, well, the, the Africans just blend in with the Peruvians and they just, you know, sort of disappear, as does Warapu. I mean, uh, I have a friend who's an expatriate. He married a, a gal who's from a Quechua-speaking community, and he's traveled I've traveled pretty extensively in Peru, but he's much more so than me. And he's never had Warapu. He's never had it. Um, I've had it in a really remote village up in Chachapoyas, which is northeast. And, uh, you know, so I was fortunate to to even try it. But most most of the time they don't make it. If they're actually using a trapiche, this, this crushing thing where you put a horse on it and it walks in circles and it crushes the sugar cane. 
what they actually do with the juice, they don't make war alpha, they make aqua diente. So they make, uh, you know, basically uh, sugar cane white lightning. I mean, so they're basically making that. But war alpha is pretty mu much of a dead tra tradition. And then when you get to wine, wine's fascinating because also wine's one of those crops that the indigenous people did not know. And a lot of the work was done again by, you know, Africans, you know, African, you know, enslaved people uh, because they, they knew, they knew grapes, they knew viticulture. Um, olives are another one, you know, that, that they knew, but, um, you know, Peru has some of these really great olive oils from the South, from very old trees, but Anyhow, the, the viticulture grows. And it's really, it's fascinating because, you know, Spain, of course, all this comes in. A lot of the grapes came from the Canary Islands because it's a shorter stop. And they, they planted in the south. In southern Peru, they, you know, grapes just took off. And these are mostly sweet grapes that are not vinifera, not the classic Chardonnay Cabernet. That's kind of stuff. You know, they're like uh, Negro Criolla and uh, Torontes and... Uh, uh, muscat, muscat, muscatel. Uh, there, there's a number of these. There's one Italia, which is really hard to identify where exactly what exactly that grape is. Um, there's some really good things written on this on New Worlder. Nick Gill had a nice article recently about viticulture in Peru. But anyhow, all these grapes get planted, and Spain doesn't like that, <laughs> you know, because the Spanish could collect revenue on selling, you know, their, their wines to, you know, the colonies. And all of a sudden Peru's like this powerhouse, you know, making all these wines. And yeah, a lot of it was underground too, because there were restrictions put on when this Viceroy Toledo comes in in the 1570s. He basically puts no, no, no more planting of grapes, no more planting of grapevines. Um, of course, that was probably not listened to very well. And then they also developed this Pisco, uh, you know, and Pisco is a fantastic drink. I mean, the first distillation of it is right at the end of the 16th century. So you're talking 1570s or 80s, something like that. And that's incredibly early for a distilled spirit, especially when you consider it's a colony of, of Spain. So, you know, they, what they do is they make Pisco from wine. It's made from wine. So Pisco is not grappa. I mean, you know, number of other drinks. The most famous is grappa. Grappa is made from the byproducts of uh, fermentation. So after they crush the grapes and everything else, you have this stems and seeds and gunk. It's the leftovers. It's like, what do we do with the leftovers? What do we do with the leftovers? You got it. And Pisco is not that. It, you know, they use wine to make Pisco. Um, when you have, it takes about three bottles <clears throat> You can make three bottles of wine for every bottle of Pisco. So three bottles of wine go into one bottle of Pisco, unless it's a Mosto Verde. <clears throat> and if it says Mosto Verde on the label, that's very special because it takes five bottles of wine because what they're doing is they're distilling wine that has not fully fermented. So it's only got about half the alcohol in it. So it's a sweeter wine. And that's why Mosto Verde is a big deal. And then in Peru for Pisco's, um, they also have to be distilled to proof. So when you make a, you know, when you distill, you know, when you make Pisco, if it's going to be, you know, 40% or 80 proof, you have to distill it to that number. You can't add water. You can't go past it and add water. That's illegal. That's illegal. You can't do that. I mean, you could do that in Chile, 
which is the reason like the Peruvians get mad Chile uses the term Pisco because it's a very different thing. I mean, almost even the larger production places in Peru are still art artisanal compared to Chile. So uh, it's probably seems a little sacrilege at the end of the day. That's a a really heated argument. So you have to distill. And the other thing in in Peru is that you cannot age Pisco in oak, in any type of wood. And there's a good reason for that, because the grapes are so sweet, you don't have to do that. For instance, if you're drinking cognac or armagnac, it's made from uni blanc, uh, French colombard. It's a grape that has a little bit of bitterness to it. And when you're making it, you know, you, you have to take that fiery element out of the brandy so it's aged in, 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 in casks. I mean, that's illegal to do in Peru. They don't have to do it. And you get so much more the flavor of the grape. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. And then another category that they have in Peru is, is you'll see, to make a Pisco Sour, a Pisco Sour is a wonderful drink. I have a relative. It's a classic. Oh, it's a classic. I'm a big cocktail fan. And I mean, you know, I'd say a huge percentage of, of you know, real cocktail bars, you know, will make you a, a Pisco Sour. There's no question that it's something that every mixologist, shall we say, somebody who actually calls themselves a mixologist, needs to know how to make. Yes, I, I, I completely agree. And, you know, the, the thing, though, with when you're making a Pisco sour, the most planted grape for Pisco in Peru is Quebranta, and that's a non-aromatic grape. So they separate these aromatic grapes, which they'll put on the label. It's an aromatic grape. These ones have more nuance. They're, they're, they're the ones that you want to sip. They're sipping Piscos. Non-aromatic grape is Quebranta, and another one is Altralada, and that's just a blend of two different, you know, a, a number of different grapes. So those are the two, Altralada and Quebranta, that you want to make a Pisco sour with. I mean, you know, just use them. If you get an aromatic and you're making a Pisco sour, that's crazy. I mean, I, 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 and I've noticed yeah, now. For sipping, yeah. Yeah. Last time I was in Peru, they'd, I'd go into one bar. There's one I know in Cusco that it, it's a Chinese Peruvian restaurant, a Tushan restaurant, very fancy one. And then they had on the list, they had these aromatics that they were making the Pisco sour and it was more money for the Pisco sour. And I said, why are you doing this? You know, and I finally got the bartender to kind of admit he didn't think it was like that good an idea either because- you know, uh, you're you're taking a very flavorful sipping pisco and you're mixing it with simple syrup, which is basically sugar and water. Um, you know, reduced down and and key lime juice and and some egg. You're not going to taste it. You're you're, you're not going to get the subtleties. No, I I hear you. I mean, I feel the same way when I order a mar- margarita. Yeah, yeah. You know, why that. use a really fabulous sipping tequila? When you're going to be then throwing in simple syrup and lime juice, you know, you're not going to get all the nuances. No, no, I completely agree. And I think the Peruvians got that from from the Mexicans. I really do. I think somebody went, you know, went to uh, uh, a high end Mexican restaurant, you know, and said, wow, wait a minute. Look, they're using these, you know, uh, more expensive Piscos and getting a better price for it. But I hope that tradition right it's not tradition i hope that fad just sort of goes away pretty quickly because there you know you just use cabranta cabranta is fine it's it's it doesn't do it right there's a reason that it that's how it's been done but 
you you just mentioned that this was in a Chinese Peruvian restaurant, and you talk in the book a good deal about the Chinese Peruvians, but also the Japanese in Peru. And you know, I've heard a lot about Nikkei cuisine, and I was hoping you could speak to that a bit. Sure, sure. You, you know, uh, well, first of all, the okay. So, and and this sort of ties together because, as I said, as Peru moved into the Republican era. I mean, all the slaves were freed. Uh, you know, they sort of assimilated into the culture. And then you had the businessmen towards the end of the 19th century, you know, 1870s, 1880s. And they need workers. <laughs> they, they need people because Peru had sugar plantations, which were huge on the North Coast. And they also had guano, which was basically the bird poop on the rocks or on the, the the little islands, the rocky islands off the coast. And they had tons of it because there's so many birds. And what they needed the uh, the guano for was to make uh, nitrates to make uh, fertilizer and also some, some with armaments, but mostly fertilizer. So what the Peruvian businessmen did, they they, they had this compact with, with the Chinese and it was in Macau, kind of a more lawless place where they basically got all these workers to sign their lives away and come to work in Peru for basically hor in horrible conditions. So somewhere around the 1880s, Peru brought in 100,000 or more uh, Cantonese-speaking Chinese nationals that basically did the work on the sugar plantations and getting the guano. And they were 99% men, you know, like, so they didn't have families. So, you know, what happened is a lot of them married into uh, Peruvian society. They, they, a lot of them mixed with indigenous communities, which is kind of fascinating. Hence my friend's name, Ricardo Sulim Wong. I mean, that's that great. itself. It's just kind of fantastic. It's wonderful. Um, so they say they all mixed in. And then the Chinese kept to themselves. They had their own storehouses where in the back there might be a little kitchen somebody cooking for the workers and these developed into small restaurants cheapas i mean peru has just per square inch probably more chinese restaurants than any place outside of china um so that these cheapas and nobody knows where the term chifa came from they think it's a uh, chifan like eating rice but that's mandarin but it's kind of similar in cantonese so you know all the research i did they think it's a bastardization of eat, eat rice um, so, and these restaurants that, that developed, they became socially accessible at the end of the 1920s, going into the thirties, when the, the aristocrats in Lima would do their parties, they would do their wedding celebrations in Chinese restaurants. And by that time they'd become very fancy in the book. I give the names and sort of d the dates on the first ones that became the, the, uh, uh, high society places. They, it started out with the rich bohemians would go to them first and then the whole high society and and nowadays i mean chinese restaurants tushen is the is the term for chinese peruvians it's just they're they're phenomenal there's some places you know that friend of mine told me that uh, there's a place in lima's chinatown which has the best mooncakes outside of china so you know it's really serious stuff the japanese come in later they come in at the beginning of the uh, the 20th century, so 1910, 1920, something like that. And they come in sort of get 
get some of this work on the sugar plantations, but you know the Japanese like didn't stick with that. I, I think they found those conditions pretty pretty horrible, and they started to get into textile work. And uh, you know they also assimilated more. I mean the you know they they seem to have a, a quicker path to prosperity than the Chinese communities did. Um, of course, there was a huge blip in the um, uh, during World War II where the Chinese were kind of uh, well persecuted in Peru as they were. I mean, the Japanese were persecuted in Peru as they were in, in many other places um, because they were on the other side. Of, you know, they were on the Axis side of World War II. Um, but after that, then you know, the Chinese Peruvian communities really thrived. I mean, you know, it sort of epitomizes itself in, in Fujimura. I mean, here's a guy who, well, he, you know, when he was going to go to jail, he said he was born in Japan. And when he was a president, he said he was born in Peru. Nobody, I, I don't know what the full story is on it, but you had a Japanese, an elite Japanese or Nikkei, you know, uh, individual became president of Peru. And also, you know, there's a couple of really interesting, you know, migrations, Nobu Machihishu, you know, the Nobu uh, sushi places. I mean, he came to Peru in, in what was it, like the 1970s? And he sort of like, the, that's when he really honed his his craft was was in Peru with all the the great seafood. And of course, he goes on and he builds a, you know, a worldwide empire. But a lot of his, if you go to his sushi restaurants, they had this like Nikkei, this, this Japanese Peruvian touch to them. I mean, one of the top 50 restaurants is Maido in Lima. And, you know, there you can get, uh, you know, fantastic Japanese, you know, Peruvian food. I mean, generally speaking, you know, the ceviches will be fantastic in, in a Nikkei restaurant, but you'll also see, uh, the, you know, the sushi cuts are just going to be phenomenal. Uh, uh, you know, you you see this, this type of... Uh, ceviche that's on most menus and really good cevicherias throughout Peru. It's called tiradito. And it's basically thin cut slices, almost sashimi type slices of fish that's used with the lime juice and the hot pepper to make, and you know, the onion to make a ceviche. Although generally it's a very light touch on all those things. And there might be something else added in there, maybe some panza sauce, something like that. Um, but yes, so that, that's been, you know, you know, in the book, what's really interesting is for instance, the, the, you know, some of the, the Nikkei chefs will say that, you know, the eating of raw fish was something they brought to Peru. Um, that's not exactly correct. I mean, you know, it, what, when I did some of the research on it, on um, the Lemanios, when they made ceviche in the 19th century, they would tend to marinate the fish and it was bitter oranges back then. There used to be lots and lots of bitter orange juice. They would marinate in bitter orange for hours. You know, today making ceviche is just a little splash, mix it up and then you serve it right away. If you marinate it for hours, it's going to overcook the fish. Let's put it that way. So the Japanese chefs brought in that tradition of just splashing it with some sort of citrus juice and then serving it in Lima. On the North Coast and a lot of these small communities, they've been eating uh, raw fish forever. I mean, you know, they. When it's that fresh, you don't uh, do anything. I think, was the, the, he's the author. Yeah, he wrote about, they call it lunch on the war. So the fishermen having, you know, like cutting up a, 
a fish and eating it while they're floating in their your the reed boat out in the ocean. I, I mean, I, I watch my wife. My wife will like almost any fish. She just doesn't want me to cook it. She'll you know, and and I know her family. I've seen so many times the fish is so fresh. They they're they're just so used. It's it's ingrained in them to eat raw fish. So uh, you know, the more European aristocrats of Lima, yeah, I think the Japanese were a major influence there. But for the rest of the coastal Peruvians in these small villages, no, I think raw fish was a way of life. So I hope I answered, I, I, I went on for a while, but I hope I answered that. I thought that was absolutely enlightening. Thank you, Bob. But oh, please. And it, but it, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about coca leaves and chewing coca, which I know is a big tradition in Peru. And, and I know some people um, have the misconception that coca, as in Coca-Cola, somehow has something to do with cocaine. Uh, not that it isn't a stimulant, but I would love to learn more. Sure, sure. I mean, I love talking about coca. I, I mean, it's uh, it's one of my favorite things in the world to talk about. Um, rem remember, coca leaves, people chewing coca leaves as a stimulant has been around for at least, I would Tom Dillahay did the recording where 8,000 years ago, for sure, I would say it's older than that. I would say 10 to 15,000. As soon as people got to the Americas, they started chewing coca leaves, uh, South America in particular. Um, <laughs> there's 216 varieties of coca in the world. Uh, four of them have cocaine in them. They're all in South America. Most of the work on it was done by Tim Plowman, the, the great Tim Plowman, who's passed away in the late 80s and 90s. Um, but the, uh, uh, so anyhow, the four out of the four, there's one called Tupa Coca. It's like the uh, Tupa, Tupac, or, or that means Royal Coca. And that's the one that the Incas, you know, sort of pointed out was the best tasting. It's got winter green flavors to it. It's from Northern Peru. It's got a very long name with Trujillo in it because it's grown. It was originally... It's mostly grown in the highlands right above Trujillo, where above the, the, the high Chicama, the area where the Chicama River goes into uh, the ocean. But there's an area of like low mountains right before that. And that's where that leaf is grown, like dry foothills at about a, a thousand meters, something like that, you know, 2,000, 3,000 feet. Um, you know, so there's four varieties. That's the most special. The, the Inca pointed it out as the most special. I mean, coca, when you, when you chew coca leaves, and it's like chewing tobacco, it's not very cosmetic. I, every year in my study abroad, I did a class on the, um, on the, uh, uh, to the students on how to chew coca leaves, and uh, generally they hate it. I mean, because it's, it's a mild stimulant. It's, it's not like cocaine. Cocaine to me is one of the worst things in the world. It's a, it, you know, it destroys this plant and the relationship we've had it human beings have had it for 10,000 years. It was first synthesized by a German chemist in the 1860s, you know. So uh, there's a very ancient uh, tradition that sort of got, you know, just contaminated by by too much of a good thing, let's put it that way. And of course, the first thing on cocaine was super soldiers and the rest of the history is just really not very pleasant. But, you know, getting back to coca, if you're chewing coca leaves, you need to have to get the alkaloid, which is the cocaine, other vitamins and minerals out of it, you need an alkali. And an alkali will be something that leaches out the alkaloid. 
And the typical alkali that you used is cow, quicklime, the stuff you put in your garden, or you could use wood ash. It'll do the same thing, not as effectively. So what they do is if you're chewing coca in, in Peru, then you would, in the north, you have a lime gourd. So it's a, a small gourd with a little pin that goes in the top. And you add small amounts of quicklime to your mouth to the macerated leaves. Don't swallow the juice or you won't want to eat, <laughs> you know. Um, so you do that. Try to hold it in your mouth. It leaches into your, your body through your, your teeth and your gums. And uh, it gives you a mild, it's a mild stimulant. It, you know, you, it's something where, you know, people in villages too, agricultural workers, you know, basically the campesinos doing is hard. Is it like Red Bull? What's that? Is it like Red Bull? Um, yeah, it's it, it's something like that. It makes you it, it makes you keep on going. I mean, uh, you know, who is it? Arno Mayer, I think, the famous anthropologist at Yale once said, like, you know, chewing coke or doing cocaine is like going through the Andes in a jet airplane. Chewing coke is like going through the Andes on the back of a donkey. Um, and that's sort of <laughs> that's sort of the way it is. It, it's very intimate with your surroundings. It, you, you won't want to eat. You won't want to drink. You'll just want to keep on going. It helps me on the trails a lot. Um, you know, it, it, it also opens up my lungs. I have asthma, but I have absolutely no problem at altitude. Yeah, because I chew a lot of coke, I can feel it opening my lungs. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not studied the way it should. I mean, uh, you know, I might get to that in a second. But a anyhow, you have to chew it with something. And it's mostly, you know, with the quick lime. In, in Cusco, in the southern parts, what they do is they have a thing called yipta, and that's in Bolivia too, which is like a ball, a gummy ball, which is like some sort of gum, maybe sugar, and it's got like wood ash in it, and you bite off little pieces. It does the same thing. That having a bottle board and the pin is pre-Columbian because the Moche people before the Inca, there's examples of these bottle gourds with sometimes they'll have golden pins. Uh, the Inca for sure had them, but somehow after the conquest, that sort of died out, especially in the Cusco area, which is, I'm very curious as to why. It's a paper I always wanted to do some research on, but I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, and in Bolivia, too, they don't use the, the gourds. In northern Peru, you'll see the gourds. Some of them are really beautifully made with like bone tops with maybe a monkey or a condor on the, you know, the, the top of the pen. They're, I've shown, well, one time I was in Bolivia, I was in La Paz, and I was buying coca from an Amaru woman, and uh, they sold these little bags like they sell at the airport in, in Cusco, but they're dirt cheap. They're like five cents for a bag. And I asked her, I said, what are these? And these are so small. But when I asked the price, they said, okay, give me 10. And, and she was like, oh, okay, you, you like coca? And I said, yeah. And she, you know, I said, do you have uh, any cow? And she's like, well, what's, you know, why? And, you know, and I said, well, what do you chew it with? And, and she said, Yipta, and she gave me a ball of Yipta for free. It's almost like you're getting matches. I mean, in the Cusco airport, those little bags cost a fortune. I mean, because they're, they're tourists and they won't give you Yipta because most gringos, again, that means foreigners, don't know to ask for, for Yipta to, you know, the alkali, which will leach out the alkaloids. So they go in their hotel room, they choose some. Uh, I think it's just that thing. Yeah. And, and nothing happens. It's just kind of, well, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. But 
But anyhow, with this woman, I, you know, she asked me what I chewed it with, and I showed her my my uh, Porto or my uh, Calero. That's the term. The Spanish term is Calero. Porto is the term for, uh, uh, you know, bottle gourd. And I showed it to her, and she looked at Kay Linda. She looked at it. She loved it, but she didn't know what it was, which is amazing. I mean, you know, because that would have been ubiquitous in the pre-Columbian world. That would have been the the, the instrument that they would chew the coca with. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of, uh, it, it was shocking to me, but for some reason, there's some part when you get farther north that those older traditions of having these color arrows, these bottle gourds and chewing it with quick lime, where it's just didn't fade away. And I don't know why, but I, like I said, it's something that I've always wanted to work on. You can also, you can get, uh, out, you know, you can get a solvent, a strong solvent will leach out the cocaine and the coca leaves. I mean, water is a very mild solvent. So when you're drinking coca leaf tea in in Cusco, there's coca leaves all over Cusco because one of the biggest coca growing regions in the world, although it's not the really good coca, is the Barum, which is right, it's north of, very close to Cusco. But um, when you have the coca leaf tea, you know, you might get like mild euphoria, very, very mild, because like I said, water is not a very good, you know, solvent. But the interesting thing is when doing the research, if you, within 20 hours after having the coca leaf tea, if you take a urine analysis test, you'll test positive, <laughs> which is kind of like amazing to me. I mean, you know, you don't, you, you don't really get, it's not like chewing it, but yet you'll still test positive. That's that's good for anyone out there who's going to have a urine analysis test after their visit. I, I think you've just offered up some incredibly valuable advice, but who might be returning to the States concerned about a, a drug shortly thereafter. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other interesting thing about that is if you take the coca leaves and you put them into Pisco, which it be, was part of a Nuevo Andean tradition, this this food tradition that started at the, you know, like the, the beginning of this millennium, the, of this century. Um, if you put them in, then you put it in for about a week, it will do the same. It's alcohol is a more powerful solvent, so it will leach out trace amounts of cocaine and the nutrients, and that's the foundation for a coca sour. And a coca sour to me is just one of the most fantastic drinks. I mean, uh, Museo del Pisco in Cusco and also in Lima, they make a really great one. Um, I always wanted to do a coca sour Cabranta Pisco and use the Coco Trujillo from the north, the one that the Incas said was special. That I've never had one. I never had one of those because, well, it's hard enough to get the, you know, the, the coca leaves from outside of northern Peru to do it. And I just don't think anybody's played around with that. I could be wrong, um, but someone should. I mean, it would be really good. But the a coca sour is just an incredible drink. I mean, it's made the same way. It has a green tinge to it, but you also get, you know, a little bit of the euphoria from the leached out, you know, cocaine and trace amounts in, in the Pisco. And uh, it's just... A wonderful creation. Let's put it that way. It's typically uh, pisco sours are garnished with bitters on the top, on the foamy part at the top. Um, a coca sour should have a coca leaf on it. Um, so it's it's a fantastic drink. I, I I think there's a huge future in, 
and Cocos Alba. Let's see if we can find some mixologist who's going to somehow bring that to the States. I think the next big trend, forget Aperol spritzes. It's the coca. The amazing thing is, is you know, there coca, coca's all around us. I mean, if you look at it for Coca-Cola, I mean, the first name is coca. And, and it's almost like everybody ignores that. But Coca-Cola, they, they admit that they use coca trujillo, that they get their coca leaves from Bolivia and Peru, the Alta Chicama. I read uh, some, you know, Gutberg did most of the, the research on this. But, you know, the Coca-Cola executives went to some of these uh, ranches or some of these, you know, chocolates, you know, that would be a better term for them, farms, uh, right above Trujillo. And they were sort of shocked at how primitive the conditions were. But that's where they source their coca leaves, and they use the most most aromatic that coca trujillo, or trujillo the tupa coca, to to flavor Coca Cola. Now, you know, Coca Cola initially was almost destroyed because they did put cocaine into the soft drink before 1900. I mean, you can imagine all those like kids working in the South to go get a Coca Cola in a, the pharmacy because that's where they mix the drinks and they'd have some food. It must have been flying. I mean, you know, but it, it almost destroyed them because as a kid, you know, there was there was, you know, the rumor just like there was, you know, uh, supposedly uh, spiders in bubble yum, bubble gum. People said that there was cocaine in Coca-Cola. There is no longer anything like that in Coca-Cola. They're coca yeah, but cocaine. No, no. Yeah, they uh, no. They it, like I said, it almost it almost destroyed them. So then they moved away from it. But then Coca-Cola basically pushed for this UN ban where coca leaves now are considered, you know, same thing as heroin almost, which is crazy. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, uh, you know, coca leaves, they should be in, you know, they have coca candies in Peru. I mean, and you could chew coca leaves in our, in the Andean countries. There's no illegality to that. You only run into trouble if you take a whole bunch of leaves and you use chemicals like you know, sulfuric acid and kerosene and you make you know the pasta you make a paste which is what they synthesize in the cocaine as soon as you make the paste you break the law and you could go to prison well, for the rest of I'll your life not to do that when i visit peru but there's no question after this conversation i need to get a plane ticket because i got to tell you just between the turkey and the ceviche and lauren you got me but when you started talking about that sugar cane beer i mean I'm all in. So thank you, Bob. No, no, you're welcome. I mean, like I said, it's my pleasure. I'm just, uh, I just tend to run on about these things and, and keep going. But it's good. No, you're joyful. And, and it, the information in the book, the information in this conversation alone has been really fascinating. So thank you, uh, Bob Bradley. His book was Eating Through a Gastronomic Journey. Thanks for joining today. Oh, you're welcome, Laura. I was saying, like, again, it was my pleasure.